This week on Merchants of Change, we talk with former University of Michigan and NFL punter Zoltan Mesko. Zoltan spent time in New England with the Patriots before stops in Pittsburgh and Cincinnati. Zoltan has been in sales for the past 10 years, the last three and a half at Snowflake, one of the fastest growing technology companies of all time. Here he is, Zoltan Mesko. I'm J.R. Butler, co-founder of The Shift Group, and you're listening to Merchants of Change. This is a podcast about transferring the skills and behaviors we acquire as athletes into being a professional technology salesperson. Each week, we'll introduce you to a top performer who will help us understand how they became professional merchants of change. What's up, kid? How we doing? JR, what's happening? Good. How are you? I'm good, man. Really excited for today's guest, Zoltan. Thanks for being on the show. Pleasure to be on here. Thanks, JR. Thanks, John. Absolutely. Um, So I'm not sure if you've had a chance to hear any episodes, but uh, Merchants of Change is really a show for new sellers and, you know, people who might be considering a career shift into sales. So all of our guests are just like you, former athletes who found success in sales. Um, And we kind of like to start on the sports background. Um, So obviously, you, you literally played sports at the highest level. Um, I'm curious to know, like looking back on your career, what are, what are some of your most favorite memories? Um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be cliche, but, uh, regardless of like what, uh, venues and, uh, stages I played at, like playoffs and, uh, Rose Bowl and Super Bowl, various like NCAA venues or whatnot. Um, I, I think, it, you know, the cliche thing of like the, the, the locker room, right? That, that experience uh, is is hard to beat, especially because uh, I was a little bit of a class clown. So I, <laughs> I enjoyed uh, bringing the spirits up whenever possible. Certified locker room guy. I yeah I am I am. There's there's funny enough some uh, some uh, not not blackmail, but it's kind of like some funny uh, videos that my teammates are hanging on to that are like, hey, do you remember doing this? And I was like, that was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Me and Jr. have some videos too. It might not be in the locker room, but yeah, similar types. <laughs> Jr. Sure. pretty class clown. I, I describe him as that. Yeah, I would say I don't do anything. My mel- my mental algorithm doesn't do anything that I wouldn't be proud of being on the like front center Wall Street Journal, New York Times. I'll be like, yeah, that's fine. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> so Zoltan, we've never had a, a punter on the show. We've had like you know. We kind of give goalies a hard time here and there, but we've never had a punter. So my question would be, when did you punt your first football? And when did you realize that that might be something you could make a career out of? Yeah, so the, the story for me goes that I discovered kicking a football. I've already seen, I've seen it on TV right prior to this, but in eighth grade, I was playing uh, kickball in the gym and soccer was my background. That was my religion growing up in Europe moving to the States when I was 11, but in eighth grade, I was in the U.S. I kicked a gym light out with, uh, with the ball and like exploded and all that stuff. And uh, it was like, I was like, yeah, that's cool. And then the gym teacher who was uh, assistant coach on the football team was like, hey, you either like kick for the team next year or you pay for that light. And I was like, 
<laughs> I mean, I'll try out. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, that's unreal, man. Oh, so that was the story behind that. I love that. Um, <laughs> are, are, are punters, so goalies in hockey are, are like the, the weirdos. Is that, is that the rap that punters get as well? Yeah, but I have an ex- explanation for that. So it's, I think it's goalies, punters, um, pitchers, and swimmers. Like we get way too much time to think on our own, right? It's yes. like, that's dangerous. Um, yes. And we, we think, we think too much outside the box because of that. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take that, uh, anointment, I guess. I see that like Zoltan, I played, uh, football in college and when the punter, you know, he'd show up and he'd kind of walk down the end of the field with either a snap or one of the other punters and just kind of be off doing that while we're doing, I played defensive line. So we'd be doing drills nice. and he's just kind of on his own, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know if I've calmed down. I can't like, I, I think I have, but like we used to have three practice fields at Michigan and the offense defense would scrimmage like on field one, I would be over on field three, working out like any types of minutiae, like micro adjustments before the game. And if I would shank a ball, like I would go into this rant that could be heard from field one by the offensive defense. And sometimes they would stop practice and like, look at me and they're like, what is wrong with this guy? So it's like, (laughs) that's, that's like me. But again, like, I'm like, I get it. I get it. So. Uh, so speaking of Michigan, you know, we, as a, as a former sales leader and now, you know, running, running my own business, you know, the the university of Michigan, the Patriots, like two of the most well-respected sports organizations in the world. And, and I have a huge interest in organizational excellence and kind of like, this is what good looks like for a team. What was it like going to work at those types of places every single day? That's a, that's a great question. I would say um, it was more, even at Michigan, I felt that the assistant coaches and the head coach, head coach was Lloyd Carr at the time at Michigan. He was more of a, like a CEO mentality. Like, I'm not going to do this micromanaging across the board. I'm going to hire the best assistants. So NFL caliber, funny enough, when he retired, most of the assistant coaches went to the NFL because they had that mentality to begin with. But yeah, um, you know, transitioning to the Patriots was fairly easy for me because I had that exposure to that type of mentality of, uh, you know, obviously I'm plagiarizing here, but with the Patriots being like, do your job, like that's, that's what it was. And it was the, uh, cross trust factor, cross accountability. Like, Hey, I expect you to do this. I will do that together. We will succeed. Have, have you, have you taken those lessons? Like, do you see those lessons that you learn there show up in your, your new career? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think anyone uh, listening to this can relate. Like if you have a workout partner, harder to not show up if you have someone to disappoint. It's just the way we're wired, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's all about that accountability. Zoltan, this is, uh, this is close to home for me. So I grew up in Mansfield right next to Foxborough. Uh, we used to play Foxborough on Thanksgiving every year in, in football. Um, my brother and I have probably been to a hundred pass games over the course of our lives, you know, way back in the day. I've seen you, I've seen you play. So this doesn't have to be a pass focused answer, but we ask everybody on the show, who's your favorite teammate out of all the teams you played on? Uh, as a singular person, I, I, I don't know if I can like, I, I like the persona of like the kicker and the long snapper and some punters that I like, you know, I backed up or either backed me up in college. Um, but that little, you know, fraternity, 
the specialist, but also it comes down to like the linemen, uh, defensive or offensive. For some reason, I always got along with them because there was some sort of humble pie that they were eating that I was eating too. So it's kind of like, yeah, we're not, we're kind of like, you know, the janitors a little bit. So I got along with them and just, yeah, it, it was always more cerebral conversations with the linemen. Yep. Yeah. More like, uh, kind of like as a lineman, I always knew it was like, nobody really notices what you're doing. If the quarterback's not getting sacked, there's really nothing going on. As soon as he gets sacked or you go off sides, it's like, you're the worst player on the team. They yeah. kind of, <laughs> you don't get noticed until something goes wrong. A little, Absolutely. very humbling. How, how do you think your former coaches and teammates would describe you? Um, so I would, I would say, yeah, the, the whole thing, like, um, uh, the the whole goofball aspect I totally like uh, uh, see, but but below that is a big iceberg of um, I would say leading by example, and and the reason why I mentioned that again, like um, this is a, only a few times I pat myself on the back, but I I really like the way that I can function one on one with people and be a leader in that sense and encourage them, and uh, kind of like as a proxy for that in the 142 year history of like Michigan football, I was the only specialist to ever be elected a captain. Wow. So it's kind of like, you know, I, I never knew that I had risen to that respect. Of course there was the whatever all American level type of play, but that doesn't mean you're going to be team captain. Right. So all of a sudden in my fifth year, I just stood there being a captain and I was just like, how did this happen? And then I, thought about it. It was like, oh, I've had hundreds of conversations of like, dude, pick your head up. It's fine. All right. What's wrong with you? Like, what's wrong in your life? How can I help? Right. That's not, that's an unbelievable stat. Yeah. Say that again. 120. 142 years, I believe. Yeah. Only, only specialist as a captain. That's amazing. Yeah. That's a big course, deal. It's hard to break the stigma of the goalie or the, right. The, the punter or the kicker of like, how are you going to be leading us? Yep. Yep. So I imagine you're, you're punting footballs in the NFL, it's 2014, and all you can think about is selling software, right? <laughs> uh, how, did you, <laughs> how did you end up in sales when your career finished up? Like, what, what yeah. was, what, how did that come about? Yeah, funny enough, um, so I, I do some uh, guest lecturing for my mentor at the University of Michigan uh, Ross School of Business. And it's sales and marketing management. And I tell the students, I'm like, when I sat in your seat, I had zero clue what B2B sales, let alone, let alone tech sales was. Even in 2014, even in 2015, once I was doing the free agent like tryout gauntlet, I still had to sit down and call my roommate in college who had gone into sales at IBM to say, what do you do around here? So I had no clue. And then of course, like in the, you know, jumping to the interview process, like I figured it out quickly, right? I, I memorized facts very quickly, but until that was internalized, it took a little bit of time. Um, so yeah, I had no uh, clue about what this B2B tech selling was. Now, funny enough, my mentor, who was that professor I guest lecture for at Michigan, he's the former CRO at Gartner. So joined 1990, 27 million in sales, Left in 2001, two billion in sales, and I, I had no clue the the needle in the haystack I had found just serendipitously. And I took his class twice, both in my undergrad and my graduate um, uh, courses, and I still had no clue what he was actually like had accomplished. So, but he was a prescriptive one. He's like, 
dude, you, you build trust so easily. Like you're always pitching shit that you believe in. You need to go into sales. It, it was just like very prescriptive, like a doctor, like take this medication. It's funny you say that Zoltan, because I had this similar experience where somebody said to me, like, you, you should be in sales. And I was in accounting and finance and it, it was, it was like some of the older guys at work, they were like, no, you need, you need to be in sales. And it's, it's interesting to hear that somebody, your mentor told you that, um, can you talk a little bit more about that and kind of the relationship with other mentors you might've had in your playing career? Yeah. Uh, playing career wise. I mean, he was the main one. Um, he still is the main one cause he's, uh, this decision to go into B2B tech sales has changed my life, uh, forever and for the better, uh, which I can go into. But, uh, yeah, from the standpoint of like, um, if you want to like, please reiterate your question. Sorry. Um, just yeah. talking about mentorship in general, like I know you said you mentioned this uh, this mentor. Mm -hmm. um, did you have any others kind of in your career or at school at Michigan, like kind of guiding you in your ways, or is it more so just this one person? Yeah, I would say so, and and I take little tidbits from everyone. Um, but there, are, I've always believed in, and I think like if you guys know who Tim Ferriss is on his podcast, I think he's mentioned multiple times of like having a mentor like above you, you know, way ahead of your career, then having peers to compare notes with on your level, and then mentoring, having mentees below you that you can, I, I think that always um, encapsulates and like solidifies the lessons that you are trying to almost instill upon yourself as well. Yeah. The, the reason I asked that Zoltan is because it's super important to our listeners to understand, you know, kind of what your background is and kind of how you got into sales. Can you Talk a little bit about the shift of professional athlete to, uh, I guess I'll call it a civilian, right? Yeah. Like what, what, what were some of the challenges? What was your experience after you, your mentor kind of guided you in that direction? Yeah. Well, that, that guidance was half a decade before I even did it, right? Because I, I went through, the, um, through the, the NFL. I spent four seasons, four years in the NFL. And then, uh, you know, the phone stopped ringing. And then I started figuring out, you know, what is the best way to let's be honest, not touch the principle that I had accrued because this is pretty much the model for like imploding your um, whatever you had built, right? This is why the bankruptcy rates are so high amongst, you know, professional athletes, especially on the NFL side. It's like you're trying to maintain a lifestyle. It's always hard to go backwards. So I really sought after like a career where I could, yes, make a lot of money. But somehow, once you get good at something, you also fall in love with it. Right. Like, I, funny enough, I use this example. Like if you were the world's greatest spitter, like you long distance spinning and you could put bets on it and just wipe the floor clean with the competition, you'd have fun doing it. And once you get good at something, I, I figured out like and this this comes from this guy, uh, Mike Rowe, who used to host the, the show on Discovery Channel, Dirty Jobs. He's like, yeah. I don't believe in this whole passion stuff. Like I have a passion for this. You take your passion with you. And like by passion, I think he means like your tenacity, like your willingness to be like pounding, the, pounding your fist when you really believe in something. And that's how I've always like organically oriented myself. That makes sense. It makes a ton of sense. So, so like you, you, you make the transition. Did you, it sounds like your, your, your roommate was working at IBM. So that's where you yeah. started. How did you go about as a former professional athlete, you know, elite, elite, college football player how what was your sales pitch to ibm like yeah. and did you start as a bdr great question so I'll, I'll cover that whole story so my mentor 
even though my roommate was, you know, individual contributor at IBM, uh, my mentor kind of got the wheels turning because he came through, you know, Xerox, IBM. Obviously, Xerox used to be the thing back then, just like IBM. He's like, you have to go through like a global sales big time program to like get you the fundamentals uh, below you. So he, you know, got the wheels turning for me at IBM first with some former students of his. And, um, you know, it wasn't that easy because then I'm thinking like, now I understand how many companies there are in tech right now. But to me back then, it was just like IBM and, oh, guys, I'm going to move to like Cleveland, Ohio. Do you guys have like a job for me there? And they're like, what? Uh, <laughs> so there was a whole, obviously, it was going to be a remote selling position uh, covering that middle tier or middle of America. So after 16 like interview calls, I finally laid the groundworks down um, to a former um, Division three quarterback at Mount Union, who's got this whole like, I was like, listen, like, what do you want me to like? I've always, I've already like stated the facts of how I'm like going to apply your software to the business value and help solve these problems. I know those facts. What, what is missing? Uh, you know, the, the ability to write an email where I'm just writing an email to you right now. It's a compelling story, right? Oh, I can't handle pressure where I played in the Super Bowl. I, I literally still have this like email where I'm just like pounding my fist on uh, via email, and then he, you know, within like an hour, he's like, "Okay, I get it, I get it. All right, let's let's move this process forward." So it was kind of like you know, it wasn't like a brave thing to do. It was just kind of like I was in I was in the situation where I was like very I was feeling very like convicted. So that's how I worked my way into IBM. Now didn't start off as a BDR because I was like, listen, for the longest time, I've already been selling my you know, kind of 1099 services, consulting services to the Patriots or arguably the best NFL coach in history, Bill Belichick. So at this time, like, what can you do for me? So they put me in like a specialist overlay role. And and funny enough, like uh, monetarily, because this is why people initially get into sales is um, I saw like, and, and it was, it wasn't very like 50-50 split. It was mostly like a bonus, a group bonus. Uh, offer and I, I still remember like what my number was in the NFL. Like I wanted to play this much because I was already fuming. I think a lot of athletes, um, I would say fuming, running on fumes as an athlete, right? So I was just playing for the paycheck. So I wanted to get to a number. I didn't get to that in the NFL. But when I saw this offer, I was like, this is the annuity, the cash cow, the cash printer that I was looking for. Of course, that job got squashed. So I became an individual contributor at IBM after a few months. And I was like, uh, like this is gonna be tough with this whole like performance-based like selling thing, but it ended up being the best thing possible. And I know I'm like skipping ahead here, like in your questioning, but I became within 24 months, the best rep at IBM in North and South America. Like I made like 500%, close to 500% of my number. Wow. Um, Cause of the way I just like went at it. That's awesome, I love it. Like, dude, you talk about the tenacity on the field, like when you, you know, mess up on field one and they can hear you on field three. I think that translates very well into sales big time. Uh, you need to be tenacious, persistent, all that stuff. You have the leadership skills. So I think you had all the transferable skills. Uh, so Zoltan, a lot of our listeners are athletes transitioning into a sales career. What guidance or advice could you give to some of those athletes who are coming up 
towards the end of their sports career and looking to make the shift. Yeah. Well, I think uh, whoever's listening to this already, maybe the majority of them have already like decided down this path. But if you're not decided or you're even like considering like what on earth to do, uh, I literally give a, a, a talk on this for, for the past five years, um, three semesters a year at the University of Michigan on why tech sales, B2B tech sales. And this has, this is compared to like everything, um, being a physician, uh, a consultant, an accountant, a, an attorney, like, and by the way, this is like all data backed, data driven from funny enough, Reddit. There's a subreddit called fat fire and fire it stands for financially independent, retire early. Now that's very like lean. There's lean fire and there's fat fire and a bunch of people, their demographic who are on the subreddit. By the way, this is the best or top post of all time on that subreddit are doctors, uh, attorneys, consultants, uh, product managers, and sales, tech sales people, and, and business owners, of course. And a lot of them just go through the pros and cons. And what I see on the matrix, once I gathered all the data, is that sales, tech sales, B2B tech sales, is the best career to get into if you value your time and you want to do other things while earning the same amount as a surgeon. It's, it's like the best kept secret in the world. And funny enough, there's such a shortage and you guys are at Shift Group are like addressing the right market need here because you're getting the competitive personas into this field. So for the people listening, obviously you have some tenacity, some competitive persona and accountability to yourself. So this is the best held secret. So I talk about like, you do have the ability, if you want to, go crush it, you'll be pretty much financially set in your 30s, 40s, and then go save the turtles in the Galapagos Islands or do a side <laughs> hustle or have enough time for your family. I coach my daughter's uh, first and second grade girls soccer team. I woodwork as a hobby. Uh, I help my wife beekeep in the backyard. Like I have so much time because I've laid out like what essential pieces of the pie I need to get and to, to, to crush my number in my job, right? So it's almost like, I know there's many nuances there, but it's kind of like one of those prescriptive like doctors. It's like, just trust me, do this. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. I think, do you have any of your uh, talks out there on YouTube or any, do they record those or they're all no, no, I mean, it, it is funny enough, like a, a lot of uh, now that there's, you know, five years of pipeline of, of these uh, student athletes or students that have heard my speech now they're like moving on to other roles more senior roles and they're like i absolutely love it like you know i can do stuff on the side i can travel right yeah it's 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 great to hear you say that Zoltan, especially about the time like jr and i are always telling these athletes about the time right like because we went to holy cross over in worcester and a lot of our friends are lawyers doctors surgeons one of my buddies orthopedic surgeon in Boston, great money, but he's in the operating room at 4.15 prepping for the surgeries. Like that's, that's tiresome. You know, you do make a lot of money, but software salespeople, they're not up at 4.15 unless they're hitting the gym or something. So it's it, quality of life. I think, especially in 2022, it's huge in this yeah. industry. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I have so many data points on, right. Some of my neighbors are physicians and my best friend's a doctor and his dad, by the way, is a the head of cardiology at a major provider here in Cleveland. Uh, you can probably guess which one for cardiology. And 
the guy works still like 70 hours a week. Never saw, and his son, my best friend, who became a doctor as well, more of a nine to five internal medicine doctor, but never saw, and, and he played baseball at Miami, Ohio, never saw his son like play baseball. And it's kind of like, I, I don't want to wind up like that. And that's yeah. why, funny enough, this is why I never went into coaching in football. Like I would have loved to, but it's like um, too, too much time spent, uh, not enough, uh, too high of a divorce rate. And kids are just like, uh, uh, you, you can tell a screw is loose because the ultimate formula for raising kids and a happy marriage is like time spent, quality time spent together. Totally. We had, and we've actually helped a ton of coaches that have moved out of coaching. And, and because they've realized the time spent versus the compensation, is there's such a big gap there. And, and we're not even hitting on the fact that you got to go to school for like eight years before you can be a doctor or a lawyer, right? Like that, that's not yeah. even... This is like long term, long term time, but the the fastest time to value is technology sales as well. Yeah. Um, and I'm definitely going to be looking up that matrix for for my talks at school. So thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm really curious to hear your answer on this because you started at IBM, and and John and I both have our our own strong opinions about the right type of companies to be starting at. But we we get a lot of candidates that go through our training. Um, and, and we don't have exclusive agreements with our hiring partners typically. So we're typically getting these, these athletes in the mix at like three to five companies at a, at a, at a shot. And inevitably they, they call us and they're like, Hey, I've got three offers. Right. And they're talking, you know, typical kind of younger, younger salesperson, new, new to the career. They're thinking about base salary. They're thinking about variable comp. They're thinking about benefits. A huge topic of discussion now is remote versus in office, right? Um, yeah. Looking back now, you started at IBM, global sales program, obviously, arguably, other than maybe Microsoft, the most iconic enterprise technology company in the world, right? I owe IBM a lot. They bought my last company for $2 billion. So shout out IBM. Um, but in your mind, what are, what are factors that are most important to consider? For these for these first time sellers when they're evaluating potential employers, yeah, that's a great question, and I'm gonna micro focus on the audience who is yes. looking at BDR roles majority of the time, right? So um, I tell I tell these candidates who I'm like sort of mentoring um, alongside you sometimes, right? Is that just get in, right? And just I obviously like the fundamentals of like is this company growing like you know, batshit crazy. That's awesome. Uh, how much runway do they have? And if they're growing, right, it's like revenue is like wins, right? Winning solves a lot of problems, right? So how's revenue growing? Don't, I mean, runway is one thing, they'll raise another round, but, and then, and then it comes to like growth, right? Can you get out of the BDR role within 12 months, right? Is there a path forward? That's the other thing. And, you know, um, I have a, uh, kind of a mentee now who was a uh, captain of the lacrosse team at uh, Michigan. And he's getting out of his BDR role in three months because he's calling these like startup founders. That's the product he, he's selling. And the startup founder was like, hold on, I'm looking for sales reps. Like, uh, do you want, do you want to join my company as like a, you know, AE account exec? And he's like, sounds good. I get out. It, and, Let's just be honest with the candidates that are listening, right? Like BDR role is not your destiny, right? It's just 
a means to an end real like to what I'm talking about right now, right? So it is, yes, it's purgatory. Even our CRO, uh, Chris Degnan at Snowflake talks about like, it is not an easy job, but man, you grind your teeth off and you get good at like picking up the phone and be showing up every day. But you can get out of there pretty quickly. But I, that's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm just telling people, get your foot in the door because there are 2,000, literally 2,000 plus SaaS startups out there who would love to hire you. And I myself, as an AE, I get two to three offers, offers per day in my LinkedIn inbox. I, I just want to, instead of like open to getting hired or uh, open to work, I want to do like, don't offer me anymore. <laughs> Like, it would save me a lot of time. Closed off, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm patting myself real quick, and then I'll shut up. But I'm, I'm just telling facts here. Right. No, that's, I mean, I, I always tell people it's like graduate school for, for sales. Just get a BDR role, get in, water is warm, and you'll learn quickly. And it's great to hear you say that because sometimes, you know, JR talking to somebody and they're, they're, oh, well, you know, the base is 45 and it's not 50. And, you know, I, I realize people have to kind of, survive a little bit but when you're when you're making that transition like it's better to think like okay let me get in get some wins and get out of the bdr role yeah. as fast as possible I, I will talk about the promised land a little more right so m maybe you go over this with with uh people in your pipeline in your training courses but right the standard is like the 50 50 split 150 base 150 uh additional variable comp so 300 ote now I'm hearing CFOs, friends of mine, who have to approve 200-200 splits, right? Because there's such a shortage. They're like, we can't afford not to grow. Um, so it's like, it's, it's the best held secret. And I feel like the it, it's also organically best held because people are afraid of the variable comp, which lo and behold, you have a yearly quota as a sales executive. But in the NFL, I had a weekly quota, right? If I had a bad day, like... I was on the chopping block if I had two get bad games in a row. Right. So it's like, don't be afraid of it. Like you're, you've already been in the performance-based world. Yeah, and when you get, when you put a couple of good years together in that space, if you're 150, 150 or 90, 90, and you're at 200, 300%, then all of a sudden you can take a deep breath. I mean, you still want to hit your number, but you don't have to freak yeah. out about your paycheck coming in if, you, if you're making those kinds of returns. That's a great point. So another thing I tell students at Michigan is, all right, so what's the alternative to getting no further education? All right, so you can go work in a cubicle at some corporate corporation, right? Making $100,000, you're maxing out your 401k, blah, 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 benefits, you get gym membership. Um, and then I, in my second year selling, make $500,000. All of a sudden, I've skipped four years ahead in my retirement plans had I worked in that cubicle in my safe job. And by the way, safe, no role besides sales do you have your destiny in your own hands like sales. Because how many times does Corporation XYZ cut this business unit and some PhD researcher is shit out of luck and getting put on on the street after, but is there, I, I had 10 years of schooling. It's like, it doesn't matter. Like, our business unit failed. Thank you for your research. That's right. And they're not cutting the top sales people. And if they are, they're getting a job in an hour and a half. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I have $2.7 million worth of revenue coming to the business because of me. 
how, how can you fire me? Okay, you'll, you'll close maybe a million of it, but you're imploding all these relationships, which will cost you. Totally, totally. And I, I loved your answer too, because I, I say the exact same thing. I say growth, growth of the company, growth of your personal kind of career trajectory. And the only thing that I add is about the leadership, right? Because who you work for first is going to build that foundation for you, right? And, and I yeah. mean, nobody knows more about how important leadership is than somebody who, who like yourself, who got to play for, you know, at Michigan and then for Bill Belichick and Tom Brady, right? Like, so um, you've now seen sales leadership at a few different organizations. What do you think, like, what does great sales leadership look like? How do you think former athletes need to be managed, Zoltan? That, that is a great uh, debacle in, in sales, I feel like, that I one day wish to solve, right? How do you get leaders from not turning into managers? I get that you need to, like, manage your pipeline and, like, question with med pick and stuff uh, and qualified deals. But I feel like once you go beyond that, how do you cut off upper management from raining down on this parade of like fire drills of like forecasting? And you need like, let's say a first line or a second line, somehow that blocking and letting the people develop below you has to happen at some level. So you got to draw the line somewhere. I get it. Like we still need to file our taxes, but somehow we must find ways to grow, right? These, these reps below us as leaders, um, like they were our own children, right? Like, I hate to like be kumbaya like Simon Sinek, right? Um, but um, at, at some point it's like, uh, it, it's, you know, how, how do you, um, and, and I've seen how not to do it. I'll tell you that. I've seen uh, very few options of how to do it. Um, at least, you know, it, it's, it's okay to give me those, those swim lanes. Like, don't, don't do it this way. Don't do it that way. Um, and then I'll, I'll settle on my creativity of where the chips may fall. Very well said. A, a colleague of mine, he always tells me, let them, he's a director, sales director. He says, let the reps do their art, right? Mm -hmm. Tell them th that the proposal would be great to get out in you know October, but let them deliver it the way they want to deliver it on their schedule, you know, versus like, hey, send the proposal and it needs to say this, this, and this. Oh, yeah. So I, I think of sales as like, I've had managers are like, hey, make sure you follow up with the client. And like, I have to forward him my email. Like, dude, this is not even like, it's a lack of trust, like automatically. Yes. And, yes. and like, that's literally the number one in, in anything we do in life. Zoltan, you've been in sales for a decade now, 10 plus years. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to the job and talk a little bit about the habits or tools as an AE that you put into practice? Yeah. Um, so there's, there's not many silver bullets. Uh, I have little like nuances like, Oh, make sure you grab their cell phone so you can text. Cause you know, 99% of the time they're going to open it up, but like literally the end all be all algorithm I go by. And this is again, like trying to block away how, how I'm being managed to how I'm selling. Um, is to sell how I want to be sold to. Because naturally, funny enough, you'll be surprised. I'm not an extrovert. I had to like train this skill. And there's no way I was going to go knocking on doors selling uh, a bullshit product. And when I really believe in something, 
and uh, I can sell it to people, to the right people. Of course, there's not many of those like champion types, especially at the corporate level, right? Across startups, you'll find them very, very much. So like 50% plus, but at the corporate level, it's like five to 10% maybe uh, can be like your champion. Like I'm willing to solve a problem. I'm willing to look good. But like finding those personas, those champions that are just going to sell for you while you're not there and then selling how I want to be sold to. There's no pressure, but you know, there's these things of like, why do you want to do anything? Why do you want to do it with my product? And why now? And, and funny enough, when you don't have a lot of pipeline, this is very hard to do easier, easier set, uh, easier said than done. But, uh, when you can give them an off ramp, like, Hey, JR, like, should we really do this? Like, it, does it make sense for you to switch like hockey stick brands? Uh, it's like, no, 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 I need it because it's fiberglass and I'm going to shoot two and a half miles an hour faster. Right. It's like, okay, yeah. then we have a deal. Yeah. Qualify them out. It, it's, you want to get to yes. You want to get to know fast too, right? That's the yeah. That's the goal. It's it's wild to to hear you say that out loud, though. Like people say, yeah. How do you want to be sold to? How do you want to be sold to? Do it that way, right? Like so, I always think about like a rep, right? Like if I'm a rep, I don't. I read like a sentence in an email. I might read two, maybe three. If I'm reading the fifth or sixth sentence, something seriously wrong. And reps are the same way. They're like, yeah, just give it to me. Shoot me straight. And then they write their, their emails, right? And they're like three paragraphs with 16 attached. And I'm like, would you open those? Would you read that? And they're like, no, I would never do that. Then what are you doing? You know, so I really, that hits home with me. Sell how you want to be sold to. Yeah. So for anybody listening. Yeah. yeah. I'm still trying mind. to find a silver bullet of, you know, a hundred uh, percent open rate and reply rate. Uh, but I will say like the customization, right? Like. There was a CIO that I reached out to like a few months ago and he's got a podcast and I literally put in the subject line, the, his last podcast title, you know, it's like, of course he replied automatically. So, yeah, yeah. but I'm still trying to find the silver template. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. per personalization definitely helps. Um, one of the, one of the things that I think athletes get used to, right. I, I grew up, I played three sports, football being one of them in high school before I played college hockey. But we all, I always had structure, like my entire life. It was like, you know, and, and, and I'll use football as an example. It's like Monday's video, Tuesdays and Wednesdays we're hitting, Thursday, you know, no, no, no lower pads and we're doing walkthroughs, right? Friday was game day in high school. And, and it was the same exact every single week, right? And, and, you know, now being in sales now for 15 years, I've developed an operating rhythm as a salesperson, right? And I, and I structure my week, but that didn't come like, no, I was never really micromanaged. So I had to figure that out. And I think a lot of salespeople have to figure, figure out how to manage their time. I think it's so important for success. So I'm curious to know, like coming from the background you do, how do you think about your operating rhythm? How do you think about structuring days, weeks, m months, and quarters? Yeah, this is a great question. So while my schedule is pliable and uh, as far as like what needs to happen when, uh, I still like the structure, but funny enough, I, um, I picked this up from the book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yeah. But um, the guy, uh, the author, Stephen Covey, talks about like the, the four quadrants of like importance and urgency. So like quadrant one is like, important and urgent. Like you got to do that right now. Like there's a fire in your home, go. 
or sometimes it's like uh, management needs like your your commit. What are you going to close this for? Blah, blah, blah. I got to do it. But quadrant two is it's important, but not urgent. And that's what I try to focus on. That's the proactive side that I'm like sowing the seeds. It's like the prospecting, the important partner calls, the, you know, the, all the discovery meetings, all that stuff. Otherwise, if it's not like important or urgent, right. Or just urgent. Cause it's like, oh, we have a, like, you know, waffle party or whatever. Like <laughs> I'm not going like, I mean, I'd probably go. I'd probably go. I'd probably go. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. I would spin it as like, you could probably meet some like good people there. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's a bad example. But many times it's like people reach out to me. It's like, okay, what's the point of it? And I like to cut through the, I, one thing I hate is like buzzwords. Like, yeah, we really got to leverage each other's insights for cohesive collaboration. What the hell did you say? Yeah. Tell them. Tell me how to skate, you know? A, I used to work with a guy be like, yeah, we got to make sure you're leveraging your leverage. It's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> leverage your leverage. That's a new one. Uh, some salespeople should get that tattooed, though. They use leverage so much. <laughs> we got to have all these, Tom, you got to get all these Reddit threads and books that Zoltan's mentioning in the, in the notes of the show, for sure. 100%. Um, <laughs> You mentioned Stephen Covey, his son, and you talked about like management and trust and how important that is. His son actually wrote a book called the, the speed of trust. And I read it when I was a, when I was a channel partner. So I used to be, I started my career as a reseller and mm -hmm. I used to tell this story to all like the EMC reps that I were working with probably, you know, 90% of them now work with you at Snowflake. Mm -hmm. Um, but the whole idea is, um, you know, once you build trust in a business relationship, whether that's at the partner level, at the leadership level, everything happens faster because everyone knows what they're supposed to do and everyone trusts that the other person is doing it. And it just moves everything. Everything happens quicker, which is in, in sales, such a critical, critical metric is, is speed, right? Like getting stuff done fast so you can get more done in the long run, right? So yeah, absolutely. that was a good reminder. Yeah. And for those of you listening that like this whole partner talk, like just think of like software sales, like as I'm building a metal roof, like I'm the manufacturer and I'm the direct seller and partners are the actual roofers, installers, and sometimes resellers. So you need the whole ecosystem just, totally. just so people understand. Cause I know it's probably foreign to them just as it was to me. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're building on some like channel specific channel and Alliance specific training. Cause we're getting into more, companies that are looking for those roles. And we have a lot of like mature candidates that, that are older and more ex life experience that would be great fits for those types of opportunities, right? Because they know how to build relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. Zoltan, you worked at, uh, or you, pl you played at some uh, world-renowned teams, universities. You work, you work at a world-renowned company in Snowflake. So what have you learned working at Snowflake? Uh, yeah, I, I would definitely say like this has been my MBA in selling. Um, I think more so than ever, um, I've catered my like non no nonsense type of mentality to like how I sell, which is perfectly how we sell or how we push to sell is to like derive like what business value are we solving, which can be like three faceted. One being like, are you helping me get more revenue, uh, cut down on cost, or mitigate risk and uh, sometimes within big companies, that's hard when you talk into IT, like they really don't know. So you have to like 
go beyond that and go wider in an account. But I always try to ask like, so what? Uh, same thing with like, are we really doing this? Like offering a no, you know, like offering a, like a way to get off the highway. Like, cause some people like just, you know, tell you stuff to like, so you don't retaliate or whatever is in their like mind. But um, to, to me, it's always like, wait, why are we doing this? Like I had an insurance company that I was selling to and like some individual contributor was like, um, just so you know, like we can't do this today. And I'm like, okay, who cares? He's like, well, like we have to submit like the models to the state. I was like, all right, well, who cares? Like, well, they're only like half baked, so we can't really like price things right. And I'm like, oh, does that like affect like your profit, like your margin? He's like, yes. I'm like, okay, how much? Can you quantify it for me? And uh, he's like, well, we make a couple billion in revenue. I think it's definitely tens of tens of millions. And this guy was like, like he worked with data. He was a data scientist. And I was like, that's all I needed. So I took it yeah. to the execs and they're like, I'm like, hey, who gets the bonus here for like getting, <laughs> having a better margin? They're like, well, we all do. And I'm like, well, no one, no one chose to like address this problem. And then- <laughs> Of course, I had other issues to solve, like, oh, but we don't have the bandwidth. And I'm like, okay, then get a partner to solve it for you. Because it's like, JR, I'd like to build a uh, restaurant for you. Just give me $100,000. And next year, I'm going to give you $1.7 back. Right. Like, just, it's hands off. You'll never have to, like, manage it. This is literally what I propose, and they're all about it. So, so sometimes you're the issue, which is sad. Yeah. But- your analogy game is on point, by the way, dude. Like, I love it. Thanks. <laughs> um, we always we always ask guests to highlight one skill that they've developed as a salesperson that makes them elite. You've talked a lot about a, about a lot of different skills. What do you think is your like your most your your elite skill? Like the the one thing that that you can say like I am really really good at this as a salesperson. Yeah, I don't know if I was like born with this. So like technically if you're born with it, like it's not a skill. Um, right. But I, I would say like, I think I, 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 I guess I give a shit um, and beyond like the paycheck. Cause at, at some point, like, especially in my third year, I remember with the Patriots, like I was so callous to getting the, the, the weekly paycheck or the biweekly paycheck. I was like, what are we doing this? For? Sometimes I would forget that I would get paid. Right. Cause I, I love the sport so much at times, but I, I got so callous. So, at some point, like your dopamine cycles, like stop for money. And right now for me, it's like, I've, yes, I've achieved financial independence. And by the way, just for listeners, like I've made multiples of what I made in the NFL selling technology, right? Uh, so I've, I've reached like a nice financial independent thing, but now I question myself, how much further can I go? So I help others out in the company. Like I'm always active on the Slack channels. I'm like the only sales rep. Besides, uh, and like just talking to these tech people and the product people, I'm like, hey, we could probably do this. And I'm helping on like bigger deals because I, I guess I just, again, like, I don't know if it's skill or whatever innate. I just give a shit because uh, I know I, I always think about I have actually a thing printed out here as a stoic uh, saying called uh, memento mori. And it means remember death, right? At the end of the day, we're all going to die. We're all going from point A to point B. I'm just trying to not to walk. I'm trying to take the roller coaster. So that, I don't know, just put a dent in. I like that. I like that. 
two things stick out. I made multiples of what I've made in the NFL, and we're all going to die. So and I'm, <laughs> I'm not joking. I think that's like a, a real thing yeah. to consider if you're if you're thinking about a career in sales. Like, well, I, I was going to say, uh, like, it's it's gruesome to think about death for like ten minutes, right? But it's almost like it's liberating because it's like, all right, time to do stuff. And guess what? Time. You need time. Like. You can't be an orthopedic surgeon and have time, right? My buddy who's an orthopedic surgeon, he's like, in order to get my bonuses at such and such hospital, I have to put in 70 hours per week and I have to like do this many surgeries, right? It's like, now that I look at my schedule, like Friday is open, I'm going golfing. Oh, yeah. Or like today I'm coaching my daughter's soccer team in the afternoon. Like, it's so nice. It's it's really good, Zoltan. I read the, some of the Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday about you know yep. thinking about death and it makes your time that much more valuable. And unfortunately for me, it makes me uh, way more impatient if I have to like wait in line for something. <laughs> you know, like man, my time is ticking. Because I'm a, I'm a bigger guy. I always joke with my fiance. I say, you know, I don't have I don't have a lot of time left. I gotta kind of you know <laughs> work yeah. hard and make some money. But uh, <laughs> sorry, you're gonna- Stephen Covey. Stephen Covey, it's in the seven habits, uh, and I'm sure he's expanded upon it, but uh, he's kind of flipped my paradigm a little bit. Like if if our life was a calendar and you're just ripping off months and it's like, oh, I only have like, you know, uh, 500 months or whatever to go, like don't look at it that way. Think of it as like I ripped off a month. Here are my accomplishments. Here's my stash of stuff I've accomplished. So it's almost like, um, but but yeah, to it's a symbiotic relationship. I like it. 4,000 weeks. 4,000 weeks. That's what we get. 4,000 weeks. That's it. That's not a lot yeah. of weeks. It's not a lot of weeks. We're getting deep on the merchants of change today. I like <laughs> it. <laughs> We're changing the merchants of change. <laughs> and, and funny enough, my like 95% of my sales calls with uh, existing customers are like this, are like talking about this type of stuff, like true friends that I've made. I've yeah. been invited to, speaking of like trust, I've been inviting, invited to clients' weddings, right? Five percent right. of the time is like, oh, Zoltan, we're going to buy. It's fine. Because it's like, it's already like, I know you're going to take care of me. There's no way my career can implode by making this decision. Like organically, you're not going to sell me bullshit. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a skill. That's a skill. That's like, uh, you know, level 100, right? When you get to that, where the, the clients almost just trust you right out of the gate. That's hard, hard thing to teach, but it, if you can get there, I think you could be super, super successful and it becomes almost easy. Like you're not even working, right? Um, so speaking of your careers all the time, what's next for you? Are you thinking uh, sales individual contributor for life? Thinking C-level, you're going to start another company? What, what's next for you? That's a great question. Like I, this is one thing I've been com- contemplating, right? It's like, because I've always, like not always, I started off wanting to be in management. And now, like for the past few years, I'm like, man, like first line manager sucks. Second line is like, you even question what they're doing. Um, but I feel like there's a way, like there's a way to, to lead. And I at least want to dabble in it because um, that's the only way to find out. Uh, but possible like business ownership. Um, the, the other thing I actually um, uh, tell people to once they have some capital, there's actually a Harvard Business School course called like buying a small business and you don't have to go to Harvard, but they've already published a Harvard business review book on it, buying a small business. It's available on Amazon, but it's literally buying a business versus starting one. And 
you can make like, you can buy these companies for cheap that they identify um, that no private equity firm will touch because it's too small. But it's right. good enough for you to make several millions over the course of a handful of years. Um, so that might be an avenue. But leadership, we'll see. We'll see. I really like the fact that even if I would own a business, I would dedicate a lot of time to it. And again, like if I'm going to dedicate some time to something, it's really got to be the right thing. Is that like a laundromat, like small business, like laundromats and stuff like that? Or is I going to get no, this book? It's a great question. It's high, high skilled service labor, something that like China cannot disrupt. So I'll tell you like servicing like elevators and having contracts with commercial buildings or servicing fire uh, sprinklers. Um, uh, Right, things like that that like you cannot touch uh, has to be high skilled labor, and uh, you have these contracts in place, and you buy these companies at like two to four x the multiple of their EBITDA, their their earnings, and you know you get a either it's your capital, obviously you're borrowing from the bank, don't be stupid after thirty percent equity put down, but your investors, you're gonna make your money back in like two to four years. And then the rest is you're growing or you get acquired at a at another multiple. So yeah, it's kind of like being a mini Warren Buffett of sorts. That's cool. Um, so so I grew up. My father was a high school hockey coach and, and a junior hockey coach, and he used to tell us when we were little, um, a lot of people play hockey, but there's not a lot of hockey players. So we always kind of grew up around this idea of like professionalism and like really be, being being a pro from like a very very young age and and it was the way it was the reason I think that I I had I found success in sales was I considered myself a sales professional not just somebody who sells stuff right and there's a difference there and we think the highest praise you can give somebody in sales is they're a pro what defines a pro in in a sales in the sales industry for you Zoltan and this is a this is a final question yeah um, so a pro to me is someone that shows up every day, uh, regardless of how they feel, right? As athletes, like many times, uh, we, we played a little bit sore or whatnot or in pain, not injury, right? But in pain, uh, and as soon as you get warmed up, right? Like even if you're sore, like, oh, I don't know if I just squat today, but just take it light. Just have a non-zero day. Yeah. You know, like it's about like not regressing. Uh, and I feel like that it's easier said than done, but showing up every day and funny enough, selling like a lot of people are like, what are the secrets of sales? It's like literally go see the customer or like call because some, sometimes this thing just falls into your lap. <laughs> it's like, all I needed to do was get off the couch and lo and behold, I met my wife or whatever, right? Like yeah. you're not going to meet someone like sitting on the couch. Consistency, show up every day. I love that answer. We've never gotten that one. Well said. Dude, this was an awesome convo, buddy. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate the time. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much. Likewise, it was a pleasure. This wraps up this episode of Merchants of Change. If you enjoyed this episode, the most meaningful way to say thanks is to submit a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in working with us, please come find us at www.shiftgroup.io. 